Ah, is it on now? Right on. Well, I'm still going to tell you the story because I can. So in some churches on great feast days, uh, they set the chandeliers swinging, right? And if you've ever been in maybe a Greek monastery uh, or a Greek church, they tend to do this. They love it. Set the chandeliers going. You get a big stick and you whoosh. And because earth and heaven are set a kilter on great feast days, nothing is left in the ordinary. So if it's a little bit of barely controlled chaos, we're probably doing it right. So that's good. You also know it's a feast day because we had a procession. And processions are great. We love processions. Um, I, I at least love processions. This kid really loves processions. <laughs> Today is a strange feast, though. It feels a little like a false start. Like, ah, yesterday, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. No one had ever done such a thing. Even the prophets of the Old Testament had only ever raised someone from the dead right after they died. They were, in the words of the Princess Bride, really just mostly dead. Oh, come on, y'all know the Princess Bride, right? Okay, good, you got that. If they're all dead, there's nothing you can do but go through their pockets for loose change. But Jesus comes to Lazarus, who is definitely all dead, so dead that his corpse is rotting and stinking. And Jesus raises him. Now that is a miracle. That is a miracle that no magician or sorcerer, wizard, witch, or warlock ever did. In fact, even in Harry Potter, the rules say you can't raise someone from the dead. That's like the one thing Harry Potter can do. So yesterday, Jesus showed himself greater than the Princess Bride or Harry Potter. Pretty awesome. And today, he rides into Jerusalem in triumph like a king. Well, sort of. He rides on a donkey. Your average king doesn't ride on a donkey, but Jesus did. In Gospels, Matthew, he rides on two donkeys, which is pretty wild if you think about it. Actually, my friend and colleague, Stephen Carlson, who's an expert in the Gospel of Matthew and a very fine scholar and Christian, uh, has argued, I think convincingly, that what Jesus is doing is actually one foot on each donkey. It's a show. It's a big show, and no wonder people come out to see it. The guy's riding in like a circus rider, which makes our iconography look a little boring by comparison. I, I do hope that someday someone paints the entrance into Jerusalem with Jesus on two donkeys like that. Oh, it's glorious. This is the revelation of the kingdom. Everything is going great. Except, of course, that in five days he'll be dead. So I guess it wasn't quite the triumph that it was made out to be. And I guess the healing of, and ra or the, ra the raising of Lazarus wasn't quite the resurrection we were looking for. See, today is a taste of things to come, but it is also a reminder of what they are not. See, today Jesus rides into Jerusalem and is hailed as a king. And he looks like a king riding in triumph, or like a Roman general in triumph after having subjugated their enemies and pacifying the land. But see, the point is, that's not what Jesus' kingdom looks like. The hymns point us to this today. They say, in heaven on the cherubic throne, while on earth upon a donkey. See, Jesus' kingdom is not here, and it's not in Jerusalem, and it's not anywhere on earth. It is in heaven. Bless you. It is a kingdom that cannot be made through the political machinations of this world. It is not the triumph of one country over another, of one city over another. It is a kingdom that defies all of that. And so the entrance today 
has to remind us that this isn't what we're looking for. As beautiful as it is, and it is, I mean, spectacularly gorgeous, this is not actually our triumph. Our triumph is still a week away. Our triumph is the resurrection of our Lord and God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who does not just raise himself, but who empties Hades of all the dead from Adam to this day. But in the meantime, we have to get to the true victory by the only way it could ever happen. Because it may seem like, oh, things are going well, and then they take a side turn and Jesus gets crucified. They turn against him and it all goes wrong. No, it all goes right. See, from the moment that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, he was going to die. That's the only option that any human life has as its end. From the moment we are conceived, we are going to die one way or another. That's it. And so when we celebrate the triumphal entry today, we cannot forget that one way or another, Jesus is headed to death. And this is necessary because the victory that Christ offers us is not a victory that denies our mortality. It is a victory that transforms it. The incarnation is about uniting every part of our human existence to the Son of God's divine life. And by uniting it, transforming it. And that means that body and soul, mind and heart, every part of us that makes us us is taken up by Jesus in the incarnation. And made irreversibly part of him. But it also means... That all our suffering, all our struggle, all our limitations, all our miseries and woes and sorrows and even our deaths are also made part of him. So we cannot understand today apart from the realization that this is another episode in a life that was always going to culminate in death in a life that took on our sufferings and our miseries, and only by taking them on, healed them and transformed them and offered us a new way of life, one that is not available otherwise. It is only through Christ's dying that Christ rises, and it is only through Christ's rising that we have a hope of living differently than we would have otherwise, Then we have a hope of life beyond death, that we have a hope of resurrection. And so when the hymn says that Christ confirms the universal resurrection when he raises Lazarus, that's true, but it's something we only know after the fact. Not after the fact of Lazarus, after the fact of Christ's resurrection. Otherwise, it's a particularly good parlor trick, but it's just a parlor trick. It's only when Christ dies and rises that we realize this is for everyone because he has shaken the very foundations of what it means to be human. And so today was never going to be the triumph. It couldn't be because Jesus hadn't died yet. It was never going to be the end of the story just as the transfiguration wasn't the end of the story or the raising of Lazarus. And so it's going to proceed necessarily toward Christ's death, his crucifixion, his passion, his suffering over the next few days. And we're going to be walking that road with him. And as we do, 
I want to reflect a little bit on something that is always brought home to me as we sing again and again every year, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We sing that, don't we? We replace half the hymns with that verse. That's a good thing about a feast. You replace all the movable stuff with things pertinent to the feast. And what did the church decide was most pertinent? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm going to go into the second part of the sermon, otherwise known as homily Q&A time, otherwise known as Jonathan decides to kick a hornet's nest. We're going to see how it goes. So, we sing Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who else sang that verse in the Gospels? The people in Jerusalem, who else? The, well, the angels? The, the, gotta be loud. The kids, yeah, the kids in John, the adults, the people of Jerusalem. We join with the angels. We sing every Sunday Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory. That's Isaiah 6 3. And we add to it, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's John 12. We put them together into a single angelic hymn. But in the Gospels today, it's the people of Jerusalem who sing it. Now then, let me ask you another question. When we come to Great and Holy Thursday evening and we're singing the hymns for the crucifixion, who's going to be saying, we have no king but Caesar? The people of Jerusalem. Hmm. Who says crucify him? Yeah, yeah. So, what we're saying today is the same thing they're saying. And it's not that the people of Jerusalem were somehow particularly fickle. They're just people like us. See, it's a slippery slope, a very slippery slope, from saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. Now, the hymns later this week, and I I, I do feel compelled to say this, some of the hymns, not many, but a few, some of the hymns later this week, especially on Thursday evening, are going to try to give us a villain in the story that I think is not quite right. These are later hymns, and I can say historically why, you know, it's not such a bad thing that it's them, because they're not really the original hymns. It doesn't matter. The point is, we're going to hear them, and we've got to deal with it. They're going to give us a villain in the story. They're going to talk about the blind Jews and the God-denying Jews, and the law-transgressing Hebrew race who killed Christ. Now, here's the problem with that. One, historically, it's bunk. There's only one person in the Gospels with the authority to crucify anyone. More questions. Who has the authority in the Gospels to crucify anyone? Pontius Pilate, because he's the Roman governor. If you're the Roman governor, you can execute people. No one else can. The only person in the gospel who can actually have Jesus executed is Pilate. Don't let him off the hook just because he says, I wash my hands. You know, that's, 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 that's not getting him off the hook for this. It's his responsibility. Now, that said, the leaders who were Jewish did call for Christ to be executed. Absolutely. And the crowd did turn on him. Absolutely. So did his disciples. Pretty much everybody but Mary, actually. That tells you something. Mary and John. So the point is that on one level, historically, it's false to say that the Jews killed Christ. They couldn't have. Only Pilate could allow for that. Only Pilate could give that sentence. But theologically, it's a problem too because, you see, if Christ came to heal us, 
then Christ is only a human because of us. He dies because of us. You see, if the point of the incarnation is to heal us, then that is because we are sick and we are broken and we are sinful. Not someone else out there, but me and you and you and you and all of you. Sorry for pointing at the people in the front rows. It's just you, you two, right? It is us. If we have the right theological perspective on Christ's passion and death, we know that the only reason he is there on that cross is for me. Not because of what anyone else did. And so whatever the hymns may make it sound like, and at times they will make it sound like someone else out there who's not part of the Orthodox Church did this, I want you in your minds to think, oh, you blind me. Oh, you law-transgressing me. Oh, you God-killing me. Not anyone else, just me. There is nothing that prevents us from making the same movement, from singing Hosanna in the highest to crucify him. Nothing. Being orthodox isn't going to do it. Now, back at the beginning of Lent, I said we had the triumph of orthodoxy, not the triumph of being orthodox. Because it is our faith that saves us, not us who save it. And along the way, we've seen people who, in the best of intentions, with the, with the, with the best ideals, who were orthodox, who nevertheless completely went off course, and who gave way to a Caesar who may not have been, uh, I guess, Tiberius, or to a Julius, well, Julius Caesar before Jesus. Tiberius is probably the Caesar in power at that point, or to Claudius or some other Caesar that we know of, but to someone else or to something else that functions as a lord and king for them in place of God. So in the first Sunday of Lent, we had those Christian emperors who got rid of the icons, who persecuted the monks, who venerated the icons, who killed them. They said they had no king but Caesar. In that case, Caesar was them. In the second week of Lent, we remember Gregory Palamas. He made a wonderful sermon telling us about how Barlam, the Calabrian, persecuted the monks of Athos because he was more committed to the principles of Aristotelian dialectic and philosophical inquisition than he was to the experience of God. He had no king but Caesar, but for him, Caesar was maybe something a bit more abstract. In the fifth Sunday, Abazosimus ran of great risk. He almost found a Caesar when he says, I've done everything. I don't think anybody's as holy as me. Man, that's on a razor's edge right there. He could easily fall into utter pride and vainglory, madness. Thank God that he meets the reformed prostitute and nymphomaniac, Mary, who says, well, yeah, you're doing pretty well, but you know what's better than ascetic achievement? Repentance. To really avoid descending into the denial of our Lord. There is only one way, and that is repentance. It's what Lent teaches us again and again, because we fail again and again and again. We're, this is the only way. Not to lay the blame anywhere else but at our own feet. Not to expect that by virtue of being orthodox, we are saved not to let anyone be Caesar and claim for us the rule 
of our hearts that God alone should have, whether that's a political leader, whether that's a principle or a cause, whether it's anything else than the service of God, which can only be expressed in humility, a kingship that rides donkeys and repentance. That's where we're at today. We're in a dangerous moment of misrepresenting the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. We're in a dangerous moment of representing it as an earthly kingdom. And if we do that, then we will inevitably say that we have no king but Caesar. The only way through this week is to turn inward, to know that the reason Christ is entering Jerusalem is the same reason he will die on Friday. And it is to heal us. And the only reason he has to heal us is because we are broken. And that in the end, there are only two ways to live. We can either live like Christ, a life that denies this world, and so say with the words of the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet no longer I, but Christ lives within me. We can live so as to be crucified, or we can appease the world. We can appease our desires, our passions. We can give ourselves over to greed and glory and so crucify Christ. We've only got two options, be crucified or do the crucifying. That's it. I urge you all, myself first and foremost, to spend this week following in the footsteps of Christ, being crucified, so that we may enter all and together into the joy of His resurrection and the glory of His kingdom, which is not about us, but about our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, into the ages of ages. Oh